This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. I'm Helen Farmer. Great to have you with us on the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Some incredible experts today across a whole range of topics. We're in conversation with Dr. Marie, clinical director and clinical psychologist from Viva Moose's We discussed birth trauma, postnatal depression, PTSD and the treatment and heard from one brave mum. We also were talking lots and lots of pets from the co-founders of Joypaw, a new computer game that's still in prototype looking at protecting dogs' mental health and dementia. And it was, of course, Pets and Vets, Dr. Leanne Cameron on hand to answer my questions and yours about your furry friends. It is Helen Farmer with you live until five and we often and rightfully do talk about the joy of welcoming a new life into the family but often not so much on the trauma that birth can cause to mother to the parents and we're talking about maternal mental health we are live with you through until four o'clock on this topic and we're live on Facebook right now Um, but we're also going to talk about how to avoid and treat trauma preparations women and families need to make before during during and after pregnancy because almost half of women describe their birth experience as traumatic and many don't feel like they're entitled to those feelings or indeed entitled to help so you're not alone in this and if you want to share your story you're more than welcome to because joining us now live in the studio is Dr Marie Thompson. She's the clinical director at Viva Moose. It's a mental health clinic in Dubai Healthcare City, um, providing psychological support to children, young people, adults, couples and families. And she's a UK trained clinical psychologist with decades of experience specialising in maternal mental health, the treatment of trauma and PTSD. She's also an accredited EMDR practitioner, which we're going to be talking about later as well. Doctor, thank you for being with us today. And I'd love to start at the beginning. Um, Why is it so important for a woman, but also a couple, to plan for beyond the birth? Because we think, yeah, you know, the due date, baby's going to come home, everything's going to be golden. It's not often the case. Uh Uh-huh. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Uh, Well, that's it, exactly. So much energy does go into that moment, doesn't it? And we don't think about what happens beyond that. And the reason that's important is... When a woman is pregnant and in that first year, there are significant changes happening in the brain, hormonally and also structurally. And it is those changes which means that the risk of any sort of mental health problem, particularly PTSD, depression and anxiety, increases. Mm. So if we think about that risk as one that is there for all of us anyway, we need to be thinking about the other risk factors because if we can understand what they are, we can maybe think about what bits of that is in our control. And what could be done should something arise. I want to talk about risk factors because do you feel like some people are perhaps more predisposed to suffering from postnatal depression or perhaps having a really adverse effect to a trauma that might not affect someone else so so significantly Mm, certainly there are there's a genetic predisposition but it's not the only factor there are a number of risk factors Uh, so if you've had mental health problem in the past and particularly in your pregnancy you are at a higher risk of uh, depression or anxiety postnatally Um, also if there's a family history uh, but there are other risk factors as well Um, And one of the big ones, which I'm a real um, passion advocate of because it's so within our control, is support. Uh, But it's the quality Mm -hmm. of that support. And not just... Not just the the support, but recognizing that you need support and it, and normalizing that it's okay to ask for help. And I think that's a huge barrier for a lot of parents, a lot of mums thinking, "Well, I'm supposed to have this maternal instinct. I'm supposed to be enjoying this. Does that mean I'm a bad mother? I don't want to admit this to anybody. Maybe not even myself." Mm-hmm. There's a lot of shame uh, that goes alongside this, which makes it very difficult and adds a layer that we just don't need in those moments. We're going to be talking about the difference between the the so-called baby blues and mental health problems, what to look out for, and also how to support your partner. If you do want to get in touch, please, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. Um, This is your chance to connect with truly someone who's been recommended to me personally, but also for the show as well, Dr. Maria Real, expert when it comes to maternal mental health. So perhaps you're wondering how to support your partner. Perhaps you're wondering, is it too late to to reach out and get help? That's absolutely not the case. And we're very much here for you. You don't need to put your name on a message if you would prefer not to. Um, we're going to be hearing next from uh, from mum, Laura, sharing her story. And then we're going to be going to the text line. So please don't hesitate. This is your chance to get the help that you need here on Dubai I 103.8.
Joining us now is mum of two, Laura, and it was after the birth of her second child that she experienced trauma that continues this day with a number of triggers that have been addressed through therapy of various kinds. And Laura, I really, really value your time today um, and your honesty about something that an awful lot of women have been through, um, maybe are still going through. And I think knowing that you're not alone is incredibly, incredibly powerful. And you had two very different birth experiences, but they did have one thing in common, which you've said is that retained placenta. Um, the first time, um, the surgery was pretty straightforward, you were able to remove it, but the second time it ruptured. Can you tell us about what that actually meant for you and your health at that time and, and what unfolded on that day back in, uh, well, it was Christmas Day, 2019? Yeah, sure. So, um, my, as I, I, you know, I'd given birth, it had been a very long and arduous process to get the second baby out. Um, unlike my first daughter, and yeah, my my placenta just wasn't budging. So they were prepping me for surgery, um, and I was, uh, I was talking to the anaesthetist, and uh, I began to feel very wheezy and uh, like I was going to faint. Um, and I don't think I will ever forget the look on my midwife's face as she pulled the sheet off of me. Um, and she was totally unflappable and had been for about 13 hours, but she started to shout. Um, so that's never a good sign. Um, basically, I was bleeding out. Um, so uh, my placenta had ruptured and I, I eventually, I think I lost uh, just around about 3.5 litres of blood. Mm. Um, and I was in and out of consciousness and I remember, you know, waking in the lift, uh, being taken to the OR and the anaesthetist trying to get lines into me and was having to go in through my leg because my veins had collapsed and was tachycardic. And yeah, I found out later my blood pressure was 30 over 20. Um, <gasps> oh so, my goodness, where, where was your husband and your, your new baby girl in all of this? They had been left in the room that I'd... Um, uh, adjoining the room that I'd given birth in. So he was left while I was wheeled out, oh, holding our daughter. Um, just And he said that the room was covered in blood. Mm-hmm. Um, just horrific. And so ironic, really, I was more worried about how he was going to be um, in the months after um, I gave birth than myself. Um, because, I mean, can you imagine the horror of being stood there with this baby? Um, watching your wife go into the OR and you you obviously came came back from that and you you went home with your little girl and it sounds like over the next couple of months things ticked over as they tend to do in that that mess of sleepless nights and newborn baby and and adjusting Um, but when did you start to feel that perhaps you hadn't really addressed the trauma that you'd been through what were some of the signs for you Laura? Yeah so I started having um, really immersive dreams uh, in about the April and May of 2020, um, where I was effectively, you know, I was I was dreaming that I was reliving it, um, uh, but but also bearing in mind that we were all living through horror at that point, um, and all incredibly anxious because you know we were all in COVID lockdown, mm-hmm. um, so I just thought it was you know fears about the current situation kind of mingling with what had happened and you know my brain processing it, so I just kind of yeah I talked about it with my husband and we just kind of kept an eye on it Um, but it wasn't really until June um, that the panic attacks really started Um, and it was uh, and then I I realized that it was being triggered by Christmas um, because Sasha was born on Christmas day and and it was as you say it was during lockdown when everyone was in their phones and trying to connect with the world and with each other and there was this kind of odd trend of having like well like a kind of fake christmas and you started to put it together that this was what was starting to exacerbate your panic attacks Mm. yeah absolutely um it was um yeah lots of images of fake christmas dinners and people putting their trees up and playing christmas carols and you know i love christmas and and I felt a bit cheated that I sort of missed Christmas as well. Um, so I was like, yeah, let's do this. And, you know, we, yeah, I just suddenly realized that it was, it was triggering me. Um, and it was actually, um, so I'm in a previous, previous life, I was a musician and I love Christmas carols and um, we were playing Christmas carols and 
I realised that it was actually the music that was triggering me because in the hospital where I had given birth, there had been um, a small kind of brass band playing in the reception area um, and I could hear it on the labour ward as I paced and paced and paced around on Christmas Eve. Um, and it was and it was that that was kind of triggering me, and I actually still find that quite triggering now. God, so it's just so. it's that it, it became that that visceral through. I mean, God, that's the power of music, isn't it? My goodness, and you know we think about all these things that come together. You know, smell and sound. And for me, I had a, a, a difficult birth, um, and it's the it sounds it sounds so strange, but it's like the clanking of the like the silverware, for want of a better word, in 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 that labour yeah. ward. I, I it it really it really goes through me it really really does and for for you then this is as we say you were in our lanes during lockdown how did you begin to to realize what you might need to help you work through this so um you know i was chatting to my husband and um things were over the su- over that summer things eased a tiny bit and we were able to go and stay in Abu Dhabi for a couple of nights, which was just really great to get out of the house. Um, and it was one evening there where the girls were in bed that I said to him, like, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I think it's Christmas stuff and this is how it's making me feel. And he just said, Let, you know, let's see if we can find a therapist. It might be difficult um, given the situation. But actually, in some ways, it probably was easier uh, because so many therapists were having to Moves online and mm-hmm. um, so and do Zoom sessions. Um, so I just started by asking friends if they had any recommendations, and it turned out one knew of a of a trauma therapist based in London. Um, so I made contact with her and then had uh, weekly Zoom sessions with her, and she was just wonderful. I'm so I'm so pleased that you were able to one make that connection, but two, you had a partner who really supported you and and validated you as well because when we've spoken about trauma in the past so much evidence to say that you know people experience different things and you know and people are affected by different things to different amounts of severity but what one thing that can be really powerful in helping address even heal trauma is that sense of validation and I wondered what else is kind of what other pieces have come together to help you realize just how awful what you you know what you went through was and how you were absolutely entitled to those feelings to be entitled to those panic attacks and to to really feel understood what else helped laura yeah so um because of the covid hiatus um i wasn't able to go in and see um, my midwife mm-hmm. and to go over my birth notes um in as timely a fashion as perhaps i'd have liked because uh, i wasn't allowed in the hospital um but at the first point that I was allowed to, um, I went in and spent a good two and a half hours with her. Good. And we literally went through um, my birth notes, which she had printed for me, which I hadn't actually seen. Um, I, um, and we went through them line by line, you know, sort of minute by minute at one point. Um, and it was incredibly helpful. And I think... And I think perhaps in, in a weird way, it wouldn't have been as helpful if I could have, if I'd done that straight away. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I'm, having had the therapy uh, that it got me to a certain point and then being able to go through and kind of re- read through the horror in a way, mm-hmm. um, do it, to do it that way around, I think it would have been a bit too visceral to do it mm-hmm. earlier, but obviously benefit of hindsight. Um, um, but being able to do that, and I was so incredibly grateful to her for being as open and honest um, with me about what had happened. And, you know, she said, you know, this was really terrible. She said, this is probably one of the worst experiences I've ever had. And she had been, a, she's an incredibly experienced midwife. She, she's head of midwifery. Um, so it was just, it's like... Um, I think I'd spent a long time thinking that it wasn't really that bad and it was mm-hmm. just in my head mm-hmm. because I couldn't, I couldn't, um, I didn't know what was real and what my brain had maybe reimagined mm-hmm. from those memories. Um, but being able to see in the birth notes that the flashes of, sort of flashes of imagery in my head were actually real was very, very helpful. And um, there's no getting away from it. December tomorrow. Can I ask how you're feeling about the, the upcoming season? 
Um, I'm feeling really positive, actually. Um, I've managed to make it to the 1st of December and not have a panic attack yet. Um, But but even if you do, then, you know, I feel like you must feel some kind of ownership and okayness about, I'm entitled to feel the way I feel about what happened. And instead of pushing those feelings away to... I guess have a level of understanding about them. Does that make sense? Definitely, definitely. Yeah, and I'm my my therapist taught me not to be ashamed of them, not to cover them up or mm. try and hide them from other people who might be with me, including my daughters, um, because you can't. And actually, to do that um, will probably prolong it, mm. um, just in, in terms of duration. Um, so yeah, I've, she taught me to kind of embrace them and not see them as weakness. Um, and that it's just something that will come. She's taught me techniques for how to cope when it does happen, um, and 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 you know, and, and to know that it will pass is uh, quite a. It sounds like such a simple thing, but you know, when you're in a panic attack, it feels like it will never end. Um, so knowing that it will pass and reminding myself that it will um, is is really powerful. Laura, thank you so so much. I really, um, I really do value everything you shared today and talking about some of those compounding issues on what was already an incredibly traumatic physically and emotional experience. Um, I'm so pleased that you were able to get the help because I think so many women and their partners as well just write off these, these births or afterbirths as, oh, do you know what, that was awful. But look, we've got the baby and let's just push on. Mm-hmm. And that can be... I think for some people actually quite helpful, you know, in terms of having having a, a bit of a focus, but that's, it's not necessarily something that's going to be helpful forever. And I'm so grateful that you were able to, one, share your story, but also get some incredible help as well, because um, I'm sure um, I'm sure Christmas would be, would be very, very different if you hadn't. So thank you. I really, really appreciate your time and your honesty. Mm, pleasure. Joining me live in the studio today is Dr. Marie Thompson. She's the clinical director of Viva Moose. This is a medical um, mental health clinic in Dubai Healthcare City. She is trained clinical psychologist, decades of experience with a real specialism in maternal mental health. And we are talking about birth trauma. We heard earlier from Laura, who so bravely shared her story, uh, doctor. And I wondered what your kind of big takeaways from hearing her experience were. Mm. Well, firstly, how brave it is to be able to share that so vulnerably and so articulately. And it shows that that therapy has been really successful as well, to the point that she's able to be uh, distant enough to be able to speak about it Mm. in the way that she did. You, there were signs there that you said were perhaps classic PTSD. Are you able to outline perhaps some of the signs and symptoms that we should be looking out for ourselves or our partners should be following a traumatic birth that perhaps may need extra support, be it PTSD or um, I mean, postnatal depression comes in many different forms. But what are some of the questions that we should be asking ourselves or looking out for? In terms of PTSD, what you will probably notice is that you get intrusive images. So this lady uh, described the vivid dreams or nightmares, um, but they don't have to be like that. They can also be just come out of nowhere in the middle of the day um, without us inviting them in. So that's a a key symptom. And so too is our very understandable wish to avoid them. Mm. So we don't want to be thinking about this because it's too too painful. uh, And we tend to avoid other reminders of the event as well. Uh, So we might avoid driving past the hospital or even looking at our baby in a certain way. I mean, the impact of that is just absolutely heartbreaking when you look at, you know, feeling unable to bond with your baby you know the grief of the expectation of what that experience is going to be like um but we, you know we've had a number of messages and you know hearing from Laura earlier about I guess different so-called kind of levels or categories of trauma and I wondered with your kind of clinical psychologist hat on you know is trauma in the eye of the beholder can different things mean different you know have different significance to people Mm-hmm. Yes and no. Um, I mean, when we look at the DSM and we're looking at uh, the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, uh, the criterion A is that there must be a traumatic event. Um, and that is defined in the DSM as some serious injury or uh, death or threat of death to yourself or, or somebody else. So in that sense, yes, there needs to be a clear uh, trauma for a diagnosis of PTSD. 
But when we look at treating PTSD, we're not just looking at that. We're also looking at the meaning mm -hmm. of it. And the meaning of it is so idiosyncratic. And it's often things like, I am worthless, I am bad, I am helpless. And those beliefs, those interpretations don't come out of nowhere. Those interpretations were laid down many years before. And maybe we didn't realize, uh, but it's the, the trauma that has triggered it. Um, Dr. Marie, I want to go to the text line, anonymous message here saying, three years ago, my first child was born. I won't go into too much detail, but she was born unexpectedly very poorly. And my husband and I had to see, hear and experience things that were very traumatic. Um, I have suffered PTSD and a lot of general anxiety, health anxiety and intrusive thoughts since. I always think something terrible is going to happen to me or my family and picture different things happening several times a day. I found it very difficult to move on. What kind of therapy would the doctor recommend? What comes to mind there? And I know it's very hard to give um, you know, a, a kind of a reading through, through a text message. But upon, upon hearing that experience, Dr. Marie... Well, it sounds like she's presenting with a number of different things. There does seem to be a PTSD element there, but also anxiety. Uh, so you'd be looking to treat the two. You'd be looking to treat the trauma and also the, the everyday symptoms. And when I'm working with people, I like to give people some tools and strategies so that they can manage the anxiety and feel more on top of it on a day-to-day -day coping mm -hmm. basis, but also with the understanding that that will continue unless and until we address the underlying trauma. You are, as I said earlier, an accredited practitioner of EDMR, and I wondered if you could explain what that is, because it has been proven to be incredibly effective, especially with post-traumatic stress disorder. Why is it and what is it? Yeah, so EMDR stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing, and it's recommended as the treatment of choice in um, treating PTSD alongside trauma-focused CBT. And what the research says is they're both equally effective, but EMDR is more efficient, which okay. is one of the many reasons I like <laughs> using it. Okay, And um, I don't want to say, you know, it's going to be a, a magic bullet, but how many sessions do you find can make a real breakthrough? And it's obviously going to depend on a person's personality, how receptive they are, what they've been through. But in your experience, how long can it take to have a significant impact? Uh, you're certainly right in that it depends. Um, what I will say is once you start with EMDR, you can experience relief very quickly. So I'm always asking people to rate their distress on a, a scale of zero to 10. So you can go from a 10 to say a six or a four very, very quickly within a session or two sometimes, not always, but sometimes. And that's a qualitatively very different experience. Mm -hmm. And to get down to a zero, again, that can happen in one or two sessions in an isolated trauma. But when it's part of a bigger picture, it's going to take longer. Lastly, um, Dr. Marie, I wanted to ask you about what partners and friends can do to support someone who's been through a traumatic birth or is living through symptoms of PTSD and postnatal depression now. Are, are there any real important do's or don'ts, I suppose? I think it's really important to encourage the person to speak about what happened in as much as they can because we avoid speaking about it and that's one of the things that maintains PTSD. But that needs to be done in a very safe and supportive way. So if that person feels that they really can't do it, it's about pointing that out to the person. It seems like it's really difficult for you to even think about what happened perhaps you need to go and see somebody. Mm. So in simple terms, perhaps it's about a steer mm. quite early on. For anyone that wants to contact you direct, um, speak to the team I mean, there at the clinic, you work with children, young people, adults, couples, families. And um, what's the best way of getting in touch, Dr. Marie? Uh, they can email us at hello at vivimus.me. Uh, we have our website, uh, which is vivimus.me. Or if you like, uh, I'm kind of into Instagram uh, at vivimusdubai. If you do want the details of that, please don't hesitate to contact me. You don't need to put your name in it. I'll simply reply with the contact details, making sure you do get the help that you need. Dr. May, really, really appreciate your time. There were a number of aspects that we didn't even get time to touch on today. I'd love to have you back um, if you'd be willing to have another chat with us. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Marie, um, speaking to us, Clinical Director at Viva Moose. It is Afternoons with me, Helen Farmer. <laughs> Now, regular listeners will know that I am incredibly passionate about senior animals. I love an old dog and have, a, have one at home. Um, and I'm really delighted to welcome our next guest because a pet health tracking company is on a bit of a mission to fight dog dementia through the use of video games. 
Joypaw say they've created a health, a kind of Apple health style tracker that can measure canine health. It includes an interactive whack-a-mole style game that provides data on the pet's state of mind. And joining us now on Teams from the inventors, we've got Thurston with us and Dr. Clara Mancini, Professor of Animal Computer Interaction, Head of the Animal Computer Interaction Lab at the Open University and also star of the Future of Dog show on Netflix, joining us live. Thank you both. Really do appreciate your time. And this just makes me it makes me kind of question everything about why we haven't been looking more closely at dogs data animal data and ultimately prevention is always going to be better than cure so i'm curious well let's let's start with you Dersamavda. do you have any pets yourself i do i do thanks for having us your pleasure what, uh, we, what do you have we so we adopted a rescue dog uh, back when we were still living in hong kong his name is kawet and uh, he's a mixed breed, uh, and he's uh, a bit more than a year and a half now. He's actually the uh, the inspiration for starting Joypaw. Tell us a little bit about where the idea came from. Why did you feel like this was such a gap in the market that's so meaningful, both from an emotional point of view as a pet owner, but also medically speaking? Sure, sure. So, I mean, the medical side, to be honest, came a little bit afterwards. Uh, and I think uh, Clara will be also able to uh, to touch on that uh, a bit later. The first the first impulse for starting that was actually my wife and I, uh, and also most of our friends uh, that we met at the dog park or elsewhere in the in the neighborhood, not finding any solution for keeping our dogs busy and just you know stimulated and happy when we couldn't really take care of them mm-hmm. because it's you know. Many people, and I, we also see it from the feedbacks that we that we get sometimes on uh, on social media. Many people have this idea that uh, a dog only needs to um, play fetch and go for a walk one once or twice a day, and uh, that's enough for them. And um, anyway, they're going to sleep the entire day, right? Uh, but it's not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, dogs have um, they they have rich lives, and they need stimulation. Only physical stimulation is not enough, especially if they're young. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, um, our dog, when he was a puppy, needed constant stimulation. <laughs> it's like we being a parent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, being a millennial, you, you postpone having kids, but then you adopt dogs. You know? <laughs> I can tell you it's good practice. With, with the poop scooping in the early mornings, it was very good practice for us. Um, Dr. Absolutely. Clara, I, I wanted, is that a dog I can see behind you? Is that look like a husky? Yes. What, who, who's your friend? Um, this is Zina. Um, she's a cross between a husky and a Labrador retriever. And she's also a rescue. Um, yeah. I also have another dog, Kara. Uh-huh. Uh, She's a husky. Um, and coincidentally, she comes from a rescue organization um, in Amalquain. Oh, really? Oh, yes. my goodness. <laughs> She, she's a local. Oh, how fantastic. She's a local, that's right. She was rescued by, by um, a fantastic organization, um, the uh, Stray Dog Centre. They do incredible oh. work, incredible work. Oh, how, what a lovely to, how lovely to have that connection. Dr. Clara, I think um, Dustin's really kind of raised an interesting point there that many pet owners underestimate the amount of mental stimulation that a dog needs. And unfortunately, not fulfilling that need can lead to all sorts of different behaviours, whether that is destructive behaviour, antisocial behaviour. But also, I think what, what you're addressing here is also the importance of keeping that mental stimulation going as they get older. Can you explain explain a little bit about some of the work that you've been doing behind the scenes and how it's ultimately created this uh, this bit of technology. So, um, to clarify, I I I'm, um, I sort of um, help uh, the company as a scientific advisor. So, my role is to um, is to provide my point of view from um, from the, my disciplinary mm-hmm. sort of expertise which is the design in the design of interactive systems for animals. So, and that's highly relevant to providing correct um, sort of cognitive stimulation for for different animals, but in this case for dogs. Um, Considering the fact that dogs have evolved, like all other animals, including humans, we have evolved certain um, drives, certain things that we want uh, to do in order that are good, that are good for us um, to keep us alive and well. And so, when these uh, drives and motivations are not 
fulfilled, um, that's when they may get diverted onto other forms of expression that are not quite so good for, mm -hmm. for the animals themselves, but also for the people who live with them. Um, the, the key is to then, the key to using technology to address these issues is to design technology that can, um, is sort of compatible with the way in which dogs, um, engage with with uh, with the world and that sort of kind of are consistent with the, the drives and the motivations that they that they have evolved so for example um, the games some the games that uh, Jopo have developed um, are sort of provide a sort of, sort of fulfill in a way that what we could call the hunting drive mm -hmm. of um, of dogs, the hunting motivation, by providing, for example, objects that appear on the screen and that the dogs can touch um, to make them disappear. And for doing that, they receive a reward. So that mecha, this, this sort of um, dynamics reproduce the sort of the chase and um, the catch and consumption of prey that a dog would have evolved uh, over time, uh, sort of, you know, naturally, but that doesn't necessarily find an outlet in mm. in, in nowadays sort of uh, settings. We're so, um, so just, but it does so, these, they, the games I've seen do though, so in a way that doesn't overstimulate the dog, mm. which can be another problem. Because when you overstimulate the dog, and you don't then provide a, 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 an adequate, a corresponding homeostatic release, a corresponding, if you like, satisfaction to that simulation, then you are actually effectively stressing the dog out. Makes and sense. research has shown that that can be the case. We're going to be exploring this in uh, fully in just a couple of minutes in terms of how that actually works. Uh, we've got Professor Claire Mancini with us and the co-founder of Joypaw, uh, Dursam Avdar is with us. So we're talking there about interacting with screens. How does that look? And as a lifelong gamer, how did Dursam start to encourage the animals to get involved once introducing them to the screen? We'll be finding out next. Speaking of animals, a UK-based startup called Joypaw is serious about making video games for dogs. It is still being run on a prototype, but it's a custom saliva-resistant touchscreen console that they get competitive with. And then a treat is dispensed. We're joined now by the co-founder, uh, Dursam Avtar, and uh, one of the consultants, the uh, advisor, Professor Cla Clara Mancini, to tell us a little bit more. Um, I mentioned there that you are a, a, a gamer yourself, Dursam. Tell us a little bit about what stage it's at and how it actually works. Sure. Um, so we, you said it correctly. We are still prototyping the, the product. So it's going to take uh, a couple of months more before we can actually deliver for those people who ordered the product on our website. The way the product works is it's a combination. There's two things, right? There's two sides to the product. There's the uh, tracker, which is a wearable that is worn on the dog's collar or, or harness while they're outside or also inside. And uh, then there's the console. I think you're more interested in the console. The way the console works is it's a combination of this special touchscreen and the treat dispenser. And of course, there's a microcomputer inside that manages everything. The way that it works for a dog is there's going to be inputs on the screen. For example, I mean, I think the, the there's a video that we didn't intend to go that public, but I think everyone <laughs> saw it uh, in the in the meantime. It's with these dogs playing this whack-a-mole game. So that's actually the first game that we that we that we made. There's others now, but. The, the, the way it works is that level by level, the uh, complexity of the game increases and you take your dog from one level to the other according to how well they perform. And the idea is that the dog will have to touch these, uh, these inputs on the, on the screen and if they're successful, then they get a treat. That's the, um, the base mechanism. And I don't know. I don't know if you'd like me to go more into detail into how you get your dog to interact with yes, it. Yes, well, I, want, I want to know about the testing stages because I'm, I'm sure kind of introducing dog to screen and then making that cognitive leap from screen to treat must have been a bit of a process. So t talk us through the, the first few interactions. Sure. It's actually, you know, I thought it would be harder, 
but turns out dogs pick it up very fast. Um, um, so the way it works is the first thing you have to do that would be level zero is to get the dog accustomed to the presence of the, the screen and the device itself, you know, just rewarding them step by step for coming closer to the device, for sniffing the device and, and just being confident with the device. Then you launch the game. And for example, with the whack-a-mole game, level zero just consists uh, in making them understand that they have to touch the screen. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is you lure them in some sense into touching the screen by using a paste of something they like. <laughs> well, it's like some, 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 some liver or some peanut butter or something like yes. that? Yes, exactly. So <laughs> okay. many, dogs, many dogs love peanut butter. My dog goes crazy for yogurt. And uh, that's, uh, that's what we used. So yeah, if, you, if you imagine you have one mole at the center of the screen at the beginning and you put some yogurt on the screen, then you activate the game so that it registers if the dog touches the screen. And then the dog will come to lick uh, the screen. And that's when the, the game is triggered and gives them a reward because they touch the right space. If they don't touch the mole, then the screen doesn't react, you know? I see, okay. And you build from that until the dog realizes every time I had to touch the screen, it was at some specific place where the mole was thinking of this game in particular, you know? And at some point, the dog will actually realize I don't need to have this yogurt or this peanut butter or whatever to get the treat. Mm -hmm. It's enough for me to just touch the mole, either with my, my tongue, but usually it's with their nose. The first prototype that we made was actually with physical buttons, and we realized most dogs will um, instinctively touch things rather with their nose mm -hmm. than with their paws. And also the touch screen offers you way more um, versatility. You know, Clara, um, you can you can add on that. Yeah, if, uh, Clara, if, if I'd, I'd love I'd love to hear Clara a little bit about what you think the applications for this and and similar programs could be in terms of yes, cognitive stimulation, but also perhaps prevention and protection against um, against an aging brain in a dog. Well, it's it's um, the more you exercise, you know, just like with people, the more you exercise your brain, the the longer you keep it um, you keep it functioning. And so if um, the, so the capacity of dogs to make connections improve as they practice those capacities. And so that's what refers or sort of ties back to what Darcy was saying about the, the increasing levels of complexities that games can offer. So and as the dogs exercise their, um, their, their ability to make connections between things that appear on the screen, actions they need to take to get a reward, they sort of, you know, exercise their, their, their capacity, those, they, they improve their capacity of making those connections and then um, they can tackle more complex connections. Um, I, this depends on the individual dog um, a lot and also it depends on on their age, um, if they have dementia, that that depends on how advanced that might be. But one thing that is uh, so everybody seems to agree on is that the sooner you start practicing those skills, the better the outlook, and um, and the the more you know, the, the stimulating those capacities are. Um, it's a kind of it, it doesn't it wouldn't stop a dog from. No continuing um, to, to, you know, progress with their dementia, but it can slow that down. I think it's it going to be so fascinating down. to see when this becomes widespread in terms of tracking that data across breeds and ages, even geographical locations. It's going to be yeah. such an interesting thing for individuals, you know, and families, but also when looking at uh, kind of dog health and mental health and, uh, and ageing as a whole. Thank you both so, so much. I've had a number of messages asking where to find out more. Um, the website, um, well, I'll let you tell the website, but it's, it's Joy Paw, but J-O-I. Is there a website where people can register their interest right now? Dustin, tell us more. Yes, there is. Um, I would be super happy for people on our website to uh, subscribe to the newsletter uh, if, uh, if they want to, to keep informed on our product. And also, if they want to support us even more, they can actually uh, place a reservation for the product. It's around five or six US dollars. 
uh, depending on the exchange rate. And it's also refundable if you change your mind. Thank you, guys. Dr. Clara Desmond, really, really appreciate it. Absolutely fascinating to hear uh, what's been happening there in the UK. And yeah, maybe going global, we'll f- find out more um, as it gets released. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. One of the busiest hours on your radio and not surprising, joining us in the hot seat today is Dr Leanne Cameron from the British Veterinary Hospital. She's going to be answering my questions, but truly, most importantly, yours on all things animal for the next hour. So if you do have any questions, concerns, maybe you're not sure if a problem actually warrants a trip to the vet, this is your chance, also your chance to tell a story, send us photos, all of which will put you in the draw automatically to score. I always say it's a goodie bag. It's not. This, this prize is like the size of a household bin full of food and supplements, probiotics, treats. And my, our, our dogs have gone mad for the Purina popcorn. They see the packet and they start, they start wiggling their bums. The treats. Um, all of this and more from Purina Pro Plan. Dr. Leanne, how are you? How's your how's your animal gang at home? Yeah, they're all going good actually. Um, they are, yeah, pl- constantly playing whenever I'm trying to relax of an evening. <laughs> My husband, bless him, he's working very hard at the minute, so he always falls asleep on the sofa, and he's always oh, like, "I've got one of those." That cat dog wrestling under the Christmas tree again. <laughs> they're w- has woken me up, but I'm like, "Yeah, well, that's probably a good thing, or you'll be in the sofa all night, type thing." But well, uh, now, for anyone that hasn't heard, um, how long ago was it? it? Must be about six months ago. I heard a little, little mewling tiny squeaking mule from uh, our garage and our neighbour had messages going Helen there's a tiny kitten running between our garage and your garage just a heads up so of course we're all out big excitement get the torches out yeah it's a kitten next we know the kitten is in the car it's in the engine it's in the wheel arch it's in next door's car and we spent a couple of days just like there with oven gloves and tins of tuna trying to tempt this little scrap out and we eventually did and we brought in this little cat which could probably fit inside my palm of my hand and it hated us <laughs> it hated us it wanted nothing to do with us and over the course of about 24 hours we we, we gave it love we gave him food he gave him cuddles and he went from what your receptionist at British Fashion Hot called the demon cat. I had to go That's in wearing sweet. a gardening glove because it just was scratching the life out of my hand. Became the softest little love muffin. And I knew that Dr. Leanne Cameron had, in her words, a thing for ginger boys. <laughs> and now he lives with you. <laughs> he does indeed. Um, so Hendrix, uh, yep, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Helen and her daughter dropped him round to my house and as soon as we met him to be honest like I knew that I couldn't say no Um, I'm a total um, sucker for a ginger boy (laughs) and uh, yeah I have another ginger cat as well Um, and Guinness just loves ginger cats too so he just settled into life really quickly with us and now he comes in our dog walks with us he he Yeah he follows us around the lake Um, my kids absolutely love him and he has now found his new favourite place in the fluffy tree skirt underneath the Christmas tree. So Brilliant. Luckily, he's not in the tree because quite a lot of cats do that. Um, we'll talk about that nearer, nearer <laughs> yeah, to Christmas, can, pr- yeah. making your your tree cat proof. Yeah. I'm really pleased. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a, and then uh, just a very happy happy story to be honest, because we do see an awful lot of people looking for foster homes, and there is hope out there. I bet no more ginger cats to cross your threshold before just, I start getting photos. No, just just not now. Not Anytime right now. you you send anything my way, I'm just going to close it and shut it off and say no. Uh, archive chat. <laughs> yes, 100%. Right, let's talk about things we can um, talk about right now. We're going to save some Christmas chat, of course, for, for the month of December, but it is National Day weekend, which means, yes, a lot of fireworks happening. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, we'd stop prepping our pets for fireworks in a very preventative, you know, organised fashion months in advance. Most of us pet owners are just going to hope for the best over the next few days. Is there anything we can do to offset their stress um, and really make sure that they're not being too upset by by unexpected noises such as fireworks? Yeah, um, so definitely, obviously, fireworks uh, to us are obviously very exciting. They're something that's new. We know it's National Day weekend, so we know that there's going to be fireworks. We're prepared for that. Our poor animals don't know that it's any different day to any other time. So suddenly when they hear sort of loud loud bangs and there's flashes everywhere, it it gets very, very strange 
stressful for them very quickly mm-hmm. and it suddenly um, instigates that fear um, that f- fight or flight kind of mechanism and they get very stressed very easy um, and you know we know that it's, it's something that's very common um, and yes as you sort of alluded to there Helen it's something that we um, you know we could now start small preparations um, for New Year's fireworks that gives us a little bit of time and that obviously kind of slowly desensitising animals is, is always the best but with a couple of days and a lot of fireworks works around the corner I think that the main thing is is what I always say to clients is the first thing is is you need to stop stressing control you, yourself yeah 100% our animals are so t- tied into us and so um, connected to us in so many ways and naturally if you saw your dog cowering and uh, or the cat scaling the curtains or whatever the last time you are going to be a bit anxious and mm. what's happening and maybe if they had you know ended up getting so stressed they end up with medical problems and all the rest of it but um, obviously the key thing is um, you know to avoid them seeing flashes close the curtains um, ensure um, we say putting TV on classical music is apparently in a study was the best music for um, blocking it out. Um, anything loud in the same way as um, I live close to Global Village, so every Friday and Saturday night I use white noise so that my kids don't wake up, um, and that they're desensitised to it and all the rest of it. But yeah, it, it's very much. And the key thing is playing with their favourite toy. You know, try and not to keep them engaged. Mm-hmm. The, the worst thing you can do, and I know it's difficult over the holidays because we're going away and we're taking time with our family but trying not to kind of shut them in a room in an area where they're not used to trying not to you know suddenly just go all right good luck off you go and leave them because mm-hmm. that's just going to make a more stressful period for some for you know the next uh, and a new nasty experience for the next time so um trying trying your best to make it as comfortable in an environment as possible is there um, is there anything in the uh in the kind of calming snacks or is that just a bit of marketing patter for like you no, know your chamomile are, and your lavender yeah well there's pheromones essentially so the happy hormones of dogs we have um, plugins that, that work quite well again it's something that does work better over over a period of time mm. um, and to be honest a lot of the medications that we use are all kind of mostly Herbalesque, trying to build up the happy hormones. Um, there are medications that obviously can sedate animals because we sedate animals um, all the time for procedures. But um, that's okay for a very quick fix. But you have to remember that long term, could you imagine being sedated in a really scary scenario and not being able to fight or flight or go anywhere? That's mm-hmm. you know, so it's very you know very much, and it's something that obviously come and speak to us about and and certainly we'll discuss each case individually Um, but it's certainly as I say we're very much aiming for our dogs our cat is going to be better for new year by gradual desensitisation but I think that's a really good point in terms of keeping our own anxiety levels in check they do pick up on it (laughs) Hannah's saying our cat Leonardo is weird and loves fireworks goes out every weekend lies down watches the global village ones from our front garden wanders back in one done good for you but that'll be because that cat lives near the fireworks. Yes, he's normalised. seeing them half, exactly. I can imagine him being year. like, good ones tonight, lads. Yeah. <laughs> Those are rubbish. Yeah. <laughs> very, very picky. In Please, the, in... Hannah, film that. I think that would be a brilliant, brilliant video. Just Leonardo, just like enjoying the view. Uh, we've got messages, we've got questions for Dr. Leanne. Uh, Raphael sending a very cute photo of Pup Simba. Uh, looks like yawning, but saying hungry for those treats. Very sweet indeed. Send in photos, send in stories, send in questions and you'll automatically be in the draw to win with us this afternoon. We've got a massive hamper of goodies from Prina Proplan. We're going to be talking about fostering a couple of scared kittens and uh, allergic reactions to dogs. Oh, is there a way of overcoming this? Are there any, any breeds that you don't get affected by at all? We'll be finding out now. Next. This is Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan. Let's go to the text line 4001. You've got the ARN Play app. Get in touch with a question, a comment, a photo, a story like Raphael did of gorgeous Simba. And you're automatically in the draw to win a goodie bag full of treats and toys and supplements and more from Purina ProPlan. Uh, John is asking um, about... Finding finding the impossible dream, saying we'd love a family dog, preferably a rescue, but I suffer from mild asthma. I used to be allergic to dogs when I was younger. I think I've outgrown it, but wondered which dogs are less likely to cause a reaction. Got kids who are 11 and 13 who don't have any allergies at all. There's lo- there was a lot of like love and pump and... Uh, media around the old cockapoo a few years ago being like it's hyperallergenic and you know da 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 the Obamas had one they're very cute you have one (laughs) 
Um, hypoallergenic dogs um, or living with living with an allergy when you have an animal. Any insights? Yeah, it, it's something that unfortunately these days um, al- people allergies. I'm not a doctor, but they're very complex essentially. So it's not always to the hair. And um, the thought was that if there was less hair, you know, going up noses, stimulating skin, less sneezing, all the rest of it. So the dogs that didn't shed, so the poodle, for example. Um, but then everybody was like, okay, let's cross every single dog with a poodle and we'll do our best to see if we can get the non-shedding coat. And actually in the majority of cases, you know, these people are, you know, promised this hypoallergenic poodle cross and it ends up, you know, it sh- some some of the cockapoos will shed mm-hmm. because they have more cocker spaniel hair than not. So that's really important to note initially. It sounds like she, you know, obviously she initially had an allergy. Again, it can be to their saliva of only certain, certainly in cats. That's, that's what I'm with cats. Yeah. Terrible for it. Yeah, I'm actually not great with cats myself. Um, but <laughs> Unlucky. I can, but yeah, but this is the thing. So like, you know, I don't let them lick around my eyes because mm-hmm. I know that my eyes are going to, to swell up. So but it's interesting in terms of what she said about, um, you know, obviously we would love, there's so many lovely Dubai specials out there and there's so much need for foster homes. Mm-hmm. So the best thing that, you know, she could do in terms of preparing is, you know, get one of these um, little desert dogs, It'll foster a dog it. yeah, on a trial and see how it, how it goes. And it's usually what I recommend. And the number of those animals that then um, actually, you know, maybe only at certain times of the year, whenever there's a slightly more shed, you know, they maybe have to have a few extra antihistamines. It's and and look, we're very blessed that our homes are, are you know are often cleaned very well here and all the rest of it. And also, so, not as many soft furnishings as there might yeah, be. Yeah, exactly. Know, in your home so country. we're constantly cleaning all the time. So in general, but certainly, as I say, with your kids as well, getting you know getting a dog into the house as soon as possible, and actually getting those allergens around actually reduces you know owning a pet reduces the chance of other allergens flaring up. So my recommendation, as I say, what I the main th- main take home is there's no true hypoallergenic dog, um, and certainly with the benefits that we have in the UAE of all these foster dogs needing homes, you know foster a dog just get used to a dog in your life as well. Absolutely. And it's funny actually how many animal how many fosters end up as foster fields and they end up in their forever home. So, um, I, yeah, I need to tell you about something that happened to me when I was pregnant and I was going to see for the very first time an acupuncturist and I was I, I was having lots of neck pain and I was a bit nervous about taking medication during pregnancy and um, a friend said, I'll go, go and have acupuncture. And I was like, OK, I don't really know what to expect. So I went to this clinic and he was a very kind of somber man didn't really speak much, very serious, which is not my thing at all. So I was already feeling really quite nervous. And he sat down and he kind of you know, looked at me and he looked at my palm and he was taking my pulse at my finger and talking about the different conditions, explaining what he was going to do. And he's like, um, so there are there are animals in your life. And I was like, oh, he is so mystical. And he went, I was like, he's like, cats or dogs? And I was like, dogs, why do you ask? And he's like, uh, you have dog hair on your leggings. <laughs> it's amazing. I was like... Okay, that's me back in my box. <laughs> Not so mystical. Just good eyesight. Yes, Thank you, sure. doctor. <laughs> right, it is afternoon with me, Helen Farmer. We are talking animals on the show this afternoon. Dr. Leanne Cameron with us taking my questions and yours. We're talking foster kittens. And Lucy wants to know about disciplining a cat. One-year-old Ashley keeps touching the food on the dining table. What can they do about it? You're listening to Pets and Vets on Afternoons with Helen Farmer. With ProPlan where the number one ingredient is always high-quality salmon, lamb, turkey and chicken. And if you are sending in questions, comments, photos and more, you're automatically in the draw to win a three-month supply of pet food, treats, supplements and more. Dr Leanne Cameron joining us from the British Veterinary Hospital. She's on hand to help and put some minds at ease, give you an action plan if you need it, or maybe it's a case of saying you just need to go to the vet. Now, you've got two cats and a dog, and Lucy's been in touch saying, got a one-year-old cat called Ashley who has started touching our food on the dining table and even checking the rubbish bin. Is there a nice way to discipline her? I love this question. Yeah, so um, my 
Oh, not not yet year old uh, kitten um, is doing the same thing. So I'm currently going through pushing some boundaries. <laughs> currently going through behaviour modification, shall we say? <laughs> um, and uh, look, it's it, I know how frustrating it is. And my nanny always says, "Oh, the cat got the bread again," or he seems to love brioche. Seems to be a favourite oh, of him, so <laughs> and can get his his paw into the bread bin. So um, no, I understand your frustration. Um, what I have used, and it is. Working quite successfully is um, a spray bottle of water. We all know the old fable of cats hating water. They don't like water. So, um, and it kind of, it, it, like, I'm not saying to like squirt them to your, you know, they're, they're inhaling water, but a squirt is a sudden shock to them. Um, they hate it. They go and they run away and then they lick themselves useless because they want to clean themselves. Um, and very quickly, um, I, I already notice it, it's only he checks boundaries and checks where we are now mm-hmm. to make sure it doesn't happen but it's improved quite a lot so just a spray bottle with water and um, obviously you have to be around so that you can catch them in action catch them red-handed with it but certainly while you're eating your dinner you know just have a little spray bottle near sure. good advice let us know how that goes lucy um sinclair's been in touch saying we have fostered lots of kittens but the two who've been recently dropped off the never-ending kitten season he says are just little ferals they are beautiful but incredibly scared about 14 weeks from the size of them. So a lot older than the ferals they've had before, but they are terrified. Um, they're saying we're setting up beds, food, litter, but what they need is lots of time to get used to people. Um, what advice would you recommend? Yeah, that age is quite hard around that kind of four months <clears throat> when you got um, little Hendrix. He was very young and very adaptable um, mm. at that stage. At that 14 week, or that kind of 16 week age, they're, that four months, they're very... You know, they, they're aware of fear um, and they're aware if they've constantly had to be on the run, um, etc. Um, and if, um, unfortunately, there's not really much other than they just really need time. And I think that, as um, as I've alluded to before in the show, cats love consistency. So um, as long as that, you know, you feed them and you play with them at the same time, give them their space to, so that they can, you know, rest and have time. Um, and obviously it sounds like, you know, they might have quite a few cats around making sure that they're not in a scenario where they feel, you know, predatorized, you know, their prey mm. as such and they're being, um, you know, it, it, it's it's going to take, usually I find it usually takes about sort of six weeks until they're starting to settle, but good consistency with routine okay. and nice food. <laughs> yeah, there you go, Sinclair. Um, a question not so much a question, an insight from Junie saying, is this a typical cat thing or just my cat? Whenever we play a game or do a jigsaw or things like that, she just comes over and sits on top of it. She also tries to sit on my laptop keyboard when I'm working from home. It's infuriating. I try and move her off, but she won't get the hint and is very persistent. Please help me shed light on this. Well, it's actually your problem for doing anything other than spending <laughs> lots of time with her. Um, she's just seeking your attention um, and... They like often they like the warmth of a laptop because I get that quite a lot. They mm-hmm. like it on their bums and it's nice. Um, and uh, cats' paws are very, very sensitive and they're very tactile and they like kind of you know difference like a jigsaw has that kind of different kind Mm. of roughing and walking over. So they will often do that. And in the same way, obviously, um, we were. Um, we were having a PT tra- training session in my garden the other, um, last night and Hendrix jumped into the bag. It's the same kind of idea is that they just love it's like it's exploring and just stimulation from there. So um, she'll just have to set the laptop down. She, he's, she's just saying to clock off. It's, it's, <laughs> it's me and you time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Junie. Let's help Marianne out saying we've got a 10-year-old dachshund who goes mad for cats. We've adopted a semi-stray who's currently in a separate room. Is there any likelihood or realistic chance we can train the dog to not chase or hunt the cat please yes it is um it's na- it's natural instinct for the dog to to hunt the cat um a lot of it is um familiarity um and obviously you, you know you ha- you have to have a few interactions where there is going to be a bit of hissing and spitting because the dog needs to realize that that cat is not just a um ch- chasing toy essentially mm-hmm. um and 
some owners get quite stressed about that, but actually having a few of those kind of controlled interactions allows that development of hierarchy. And very quickly, you'll find that the cat will become boss um, above that. <laughs> and again, um, I feel like I repeat myself quite a lot with time, but unfortunately, you know, it's in the same way as we can't expect sudden behavioral changes in ourselves. It yeah. takes time and you have to work on it. Um, and just obviously just ha- let them have their you know spaces where they are comfortable and happy in themselves they've got little sanctuaries if they need them exactly and just short you know it can start off with a couple of minutes um, and then always just make sure there's no interaction with food because animals get very very um, so avoiding those kind of guarding scenarios exactly because at the end of the day again and when they're in that kind of predator prey type scenario that you know they automatically get very kind of hot up and obviously they get very very sensitive over food so avoiding kind of food interaction actions um, and as I say usually again 68 weeks something like that mm-hmm. oh Marianne it is it is possible it is possible I understand that fear I understand that the worry about the clash and yeah. oh my god is there going to be bloodshed is there going to be you know but as you say, controlled environment, make sure there's no resources nearby. Yeah, and, and often beyond, often it's bleeding from the dog's nose because the cat's got really the got thing, us, you got, know. Got so, the chlorine. Um, and, and look, there are certain dogs, you know, I wouldn't be letting a Doberman in with um, a, a kitten who's trained to be a guard dog to fight because naturally yeah. that's going to happen. But um, majority of dogs, we've domesticated them so much that they can't, they're social animals. So they Marianne, actually want to. we'd love to see a photo of your new semi-stray and your little dash hound all curled up together in a couple of weeks keep us posted Leanne thank you so much for your time no absolute pleasure to have you Leanne Cameron um, joining us in the British Veterinary Hospital if we didn't get to your message today well, we'll of course put it for next week we've got a brand new Pets and Pets every single Wednesday afternoon and thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast don't forget you can subscribe you'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out and you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8 Monday to Friday between 2 and 5pm You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.